Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Jim McClanahan of Journey to the West Research is back by the woodpile, this time to talk nearly solely about Sumo Kong in regards to his various names and gear chiefly, but also his connections to that other great novel, Outlaws of the Marsh, and how he somehow plays a major role in the graphic novel by Jin Young, American-born Chinese. If you haven't heard the first episode Mr. McClanahan was on, you can find it on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 183, where he gives an overview of the novel, the main characters, and some history of the work itself. But back to the task at hand, let's get to know the great sage eagling heaven a little better. First of all, did Sun Wukong exist in other stories or legends before being inserted into the version of Journey to the West, which we have now? So the answer to that is no and yes. That clears it all yeah. up. <laughs> all right, that's it. All right, okay. nice talk. With that's right. See ya. It's no because Sun Wukong has been associated with the Journey to the West story cycle for centuries. And yes, because his story predates the final uh, late Ming Dynasty edition of the novel by at least 400 years. For instance, the earliest known depiction of Monkey is found in an 11th century religious mural from the Eastern Thousand Buddha Cave Temple Complex of Gansu Province in northwestern China. The earliest printed version of his adventures, which were called the story of how Tripitaka of the Great Tong procures the scriptures, is a 17-chapter novelette that likely served as a prompt for oral storytellers of the late 13th century. The tale is quite different from the Ming version, and it's very interesting how different it is. Uh, For example, uh, Monkey is known only as the Monkey Pilgrim, and he fights with two different staves, which I'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. And in addition, uh, Jubajie does not appear in the novel and a precursor of Xiao Wujing only makes a brief cameo as a monster that monkey battles. Where did the monkey king originate as far as anyone can tell? Well, there's a lot of debate about that, and it's still ongoing. So there are a lot of people who think that he is a direct carbon copy of the Hindu god Hanuman. There's a lot of people who think that he's purely Chinese. It's probably a little bit of both. For instance, you know, like in the story, he gets crushed beneath a mountain, right, uh, by the Buddha because he's indestructible and he's causing problems. Well, there's actually a story from it's it appears in Tong and Song Dynasty sources in which the uh, great sage emperor Yu crushes a simian water spirit under a mountain. So that's where that comes from. Hmm. And then. You know, Monkey, obviously, he's supernatural. He's a primate. He has all these different powers. A lot of people think that comes directly from Hanuman. It's very possible, you know, because there was a lot of interaction between uh, Southeast Asia and also India with China. Uh, There's a paper by 
Hera S. Walker, where she, you know, she gives out her own theories as far as uh, the origins of Summel Kong and his links to Hanuman. And it's a very, it's a wonderful, wonderful paper. And the links with Hanuman, I, I'm more of the, the thought that the link is more indirect. And, and I'll tell you why. So there is a Tong Dynasty story, and it's called a supplement to Jiang Zong's biography of a white ape. It's from the late 7th century. And it tells the story of a um, the young, beautiful wife of a general who is kidnapped by this seemingly invisible force. And she's kidnapped from this well-guarded room. Okay? And then... Her husband goes on this great search for her, finds her shoes very similar to Cinderella, which Cinderella can be traced to all around the world and more specifically to Asia. But anyway, so he tracks her down to this mountain paradise that's lorded over by this, what's called this powerful murderous God who loves to eat dogs and drink wine. And the generals uh, work with, all of these other female captives who live in this mountain paradise to help kill the, this god. The general eventually finds out that this god is actually a magical white ape who likes to kidnap women. And in the end of the story, the general is able to kill the, the ape and rescue his wife. He takes his wife and the other captives back to northern China. I know that doesn't really sound anything like someone calling, but so... In the story, this white ape, he's cast as a practitioner of Taoist longevity arts. He's about a thousand years old. He is capable of flying and changing his shape. So in the beginning of the story, he just looks like a really, really tall guy, like over six feet tall, and he has this long white beard. But then later, after getting drunk, it's revealed that he is a white ape. So he's able of changing his form and changing back between a white ape and an old man is common in stories going back to the Han dynasty. And he also knows martial arts. He fights with a sword. He is capable of defeating an army by himself. He has uh, rock hard skin that's invincible to most uh, efforts to harm him. He lives in a mountain utopia like uh, flower fruit mountain and inside of that mountain, he lives in a cave that has lots of like stone furniture, like the uh, water uh, water curtain cave of Samuel Kong. Hmm. So there's a lot of similarities uh, between this story, which is from the seventh century, and from the Ming Dynasty version of Samuel Kong that we have. So I personally think that if there was an influence with with Hanuman, it was indirect, like it indirectly influenced media that would later influence Samuel Kong. Have you seen pictures so, of this Hindu uh, counterpart to Samuel Kong? Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, I've, I love Hanuman. I've got pictures of him everywhere and saved on my computer. And huh. yeah, yeah, he's just this huge hulking, like, I know primates are humanoid, but like basically he just, he's, you know, just this huge muscular man with a monkey's face. And he always carries the, uh, it's called a gada, which is a, just like a, a really heavy mace type weapon, which is used in modern India as like a form of exercise. 
But I actually have a paper on my website where I talk about how there actually is no connection between the mace used by Hanuman and the staff used by Samulkong. And why is that? And it was because, first off, in the Ramayana, the original like 4th or 5th century BCE uh, Hindu epic that Hanuman appears in, he does not use a club. He is just so massively powerful that he either uses his own strength as a weapon or he just grabs either something man-made or natural and just beats up whoever he's fighting with that. So there, there is no club. And his association with the club, uh, like, for instance, there is some 12th century coinage. I don't remember what kingdom it's from, but he appears... Uh, I think for the first time with the club in that 12th century coinage. So his association with that weapon is a later association. Uh, of course, if it appeared on coinage, obviously iconography takes time to develop and then become standardized. So, you know, it may have been a few centuries prior to that, that he was associated with it, but uh, his association with the club was, is likely because not only because he's strong and that weapon is, is associated with warriors, but also because he's associated with, um, with demons in Hindu lore. And demons tend to use those, uh, those clubs. And there are actually some heavenly demons, I guess you could say, that use those clubs as well. So you have these heavenly beings who are super strong, who are warriors, who use these clubs. And in the Mahabharata, uh, Hanuman is associated with some of these demons. So it's kind of a progression to him using that weapon. Whereas Samuel Kong's weapon is based on the two types of weapons, initially based on the two types of weapons that are uh, historically carried by like re religious and also military monks. So the religious monks would carry like these 10 stabs that had uh, these these rings on them that would jingle. So you know how Samuel Kong, he has the staff, it's called the golden hoop staff. You know, it has these golden rings on either end. That's where that comes from. And then he, his staff is also made of iron. So there are some military monks that would carry these like iron stabs in the battle because of their capacity for killing. And which is also described in like, for instance, Ming Dynasty records where the military monks fought Japanese pirates in southern China during the, I don't know, like the 16th, 16th century, like around the 1550s. And there are records of them like killing people with those stabs. But Samuel Kong's staff is actually a mix, like I said, a mix of those two. But in the, the story that I mentioned, the 13th century um, storytelling prompt, he uses two weapons. And I'll, I'll talk about this more later, but basically... The two staves that he uses in that story were eventually combined by storytellers to create the staff that he has now. So yeah, there is there is no connection between the seemingly similar weapons used between Hanuman and Samukong. While we're on the subject of uh, Samuel Kong's accessories, 
we'll say. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of these items that are very iconic at this point? But you know, there, there's this headband, there's the cudgel, which you were just talking about, and then right. there's various other things. So, can you give us a rundown? And yeah, yes. So well, obviously, the first one is the the magic iron staff. Summer Kong acquires this from the underwater treasury of the Eastern Sea Dragon King. It's described in the novel as like initially as a giant pillar of black iron that's like 20 feet high and then monkey's able to shrink it down just by his will once it shrinks down monkey notices that it uh has a single golden golden hoop on each end and then there's like an inscription that says the as you wish gold banded cudgel weight 17,550 pounds so obviously it's a super heavy weapon the novel actually contradicts itself by attributing the weapon's creation to two different people. One chapter states it was forged by the Taoist god Lao Tzu, while another states it was forged by Yu the Great, who I had mentioned earlier. So I had mentioned before that the the staff is a combination of the two weapons that are used by uh, the monkey pilgrim and the story of how Tripitaka of the Great Tong procures the scriptures. So one is the golden ring monk staff that uh, monkey receives from a heavenly deity. And it has magical powers of being able to transform into living beings like a giant yaksha whose head touches the sky or a, uh, an iron dragon. So it's very powerful. It can also shoot out these rays of lights, uh, rays of light that can destroy things all around it. Uh, and this is actually based on a staff carried by a Buddhist saint in a, uh, a text that influenced the ghost festival. You've probably heard of uh, Mu Lian. He's the guy who goes to hell to rescue his mother from karmic torment. Right. Yeah, so that's, that's where that staff was influenced from. Also, the monkey pilgrim uses an iron staff that was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was originally used to beat him by the queen mother of the West, because he stole some of her peaches. So those two weapons were eventually combined by storytellers, whether it be during the, the Yuan dynasty or the Ming dynasty. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but yeah, those were later combined. So now we have the suit of armor. The armor is uh, extorted from the Eastern Sea Dragon King and his brothers. So obviously there are multiple seas. Each sea has its own Dragon King. And once the monkey takes the staff, he gets kind of foolhardy and basically threatens the the dragon and says, "Hey, I would it would be super nice if you could give me some matching armor. And oh, by the way, if you don't give me armor, I'm gonna beat you up." And so the dragon kings kind of pull their resources together and they give him armor that has boots, golden chainmail and a cap with two long antenna-like phoenix feathers that stand erect on top of his head. So that's very, very iconic. A lot of people, when they see that, they think, okay, that's Sun Wukong. But actually, those feathers in the armor itself is actually based on costumes worn in Chinese opera. There is a specific role. It's called the uh, Wu Xiaosheng, and it's a young hero role that involves lots of acrobatics and whatnot. And the feathers are used to convey particular emotions such as anger or force, uh, frustration, depending on how they are shaken or manipulated in the mouth. Monkey is portrayed wearing a, that armor because it was most likely because the it was associated with 
heroes in Chinese opera. And so I, I'm not sure when the earliest appearance of this armor was, but if it was um, prior to the novel, you know, it could have been storytellers. If not, it would have been, you know, the compiler of the novel itself. And it was just a way of propping up Monkey as like this great hero. Okay, so we have the the staff, the armor. Now we have uh, two things which I'll explain together because they are related. So we have the tiger skin kilt and the golden headband. Sun Wukong makes the tiger skin kilt shortly after his release from imprisonment under Five Elements Mountain. He kills a tiger like easily. He skins it, puts it around his naked body because I'm pretty sure Tripitaka, you know, he's a prude. So he's <laughs> totally freaked out by having the, the naked uh, or the, the hairy naked guy running around. And then after that, Sun Wukong, shortly thereafter, he kills like six of these bandits who try to attack Tripitaka. By the way, each of those bandits actually represent uh, like the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the nose, the tongue, like everything, all of the, the senses that keep us trapped in the illusionary world of samsara so each one is an allegory they're not meant to be taken literally so after that uh the monk and Kong they part ways over the killings at some point uh guan yin comes and says hey i have this magic hat that you can use to basically subdue Kong." so she convinces Kong to come back they trick him into putting on the hat and then the golden headband is inside and it tightens around his head, and so they're able to use pain in order to basically get this powerful mortal under control. And the reason that both the headband and the tiger skin uh, are being explained now is that they actually come from a common source. So the, the headband and the tiger skin are based on a number of ritual items originally worn by uh, Buddhist yogis while worshiping wrathful protector deities. Uh, these items are listed in an 8th century Indian esoteric Buddhist text titled the Havadra Tantra. The actual passage reads, the practitioner should wear divine earrings, a circlet around the head, upon each wrist a bracelet, a girdle around his waist, anklets around the ankles, arm ornaments around the upper arms, and a garland of bones around the neck. His dress must be of tiger skin and his food, the five nectars. The Havadra Tantra goes on to connect some of these items with the five cosmic Buddhas of esoteric Buddhism. Uh, for example, the headband is used to represent the Akshobhya Buddha, who is known for his vow to attain Buddhahood through moralistic practices. Therefore, the ritual headband most likely served as a physical reminder of right speech and action just like Monkey's headband does in the novel. And it should be noted that the, the same wrathful deities worshipped by the Buddhist yogis were often depicted wearing the same clothing as their followers. So that's why uh, throughout uh, some parts of India, uh, Tibet, and into China, and even Japan, there are a lot of like wrathful deities. You may not necessarily see the headband, but a lot of them always have the, the wristbands, the armbands, the anklets, the tiger skin, they, a lot of times they will have the necklace of bones, which is actually where uh, Sha Wu Jing's necklace of skulls comes from. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh.
大圣回来了没有？没有啊，我们正要问你呢。我看大圣一定遇上麻烦了，请你带八戒去看看，行吗？呃，师傅，别别，呃，走。Well, just like we talked about his various accessories, Sun Wukong picked up a variety of names. And what was his first name? His original name? Right. Well, there's eight in total. So the the very first name is more of a description and not really a given name. So he was called the Stone Monkey, and this obviously refers to his birth from stone at the beginning of the novel. And his birth in the beginning of the novel is. Based on the birth of you, the Great, who I've mentioned a couple of times already, so there are some stories as far back as the Han Dynasty that you, the Great, who is considered the founder of the Xia Dynasty, which is, I honestly I forget the, it's you know many many millennia ago. It's one of the first.、Uh, yeah, it's it's basically the first Chinese di- dynasty, but it's considered so long ago that it's it's more mythical than it is historical because it predates. You know, like the the oracle bones and whatnot. You know, stories from the Han Dynasty talk about how Yu the Great was born from a stone, and then there are later stories that talk about even his son was born from a stone. And interestingly, I found out that you know China is not the only country that actually has gods who are born from stone. I was recently surprised to learn that the、uh, Persian turned、uh, Roman god Mithras. There are stories associated with him where he is born from stone, and and even there are stories that said that his son was born from stone. I don't think there's any connection between you, the Great, and Mithras at all. Even what I understand, the Roman people were born of stone. They they were actually like rocks who became people, and it was. It's been so, a while since I've studied this, but I think it was to account for why they were so tough. Well, the the reason that I think that we have all of these cultures who. Are, well, for instance, in the Christian Judeo-Islamic tradition, you have man is made from clay, right? Right. So there's all all of these myths that say that humans are made from the basic material of earth, and I, the reason I think that is, and it, it's it's pretty easy if you think about it. So,、um, ancient people they relied on the earth to grow their crops, but also they used that same earth to make pottery, and most importantly, like effigies of their gods and figurines and whatnot. So, you know, earth can be used to not only grow life; it can also be used to imitate it. So, I think that's where these stories come from of all these gods and and you know humans that are made from rocks or clay or whatever. We're all I think that's where that all that comes from, right? Okay, so the second name he actually gives himself. So it's the Handsome Monkey King, and this is just basically an egotistical title that he gives himself. Like he's just He's pure ego, you know. Even though in the novel he's described as being very, very ugly, you know, many, many times, like he has a furry, jowless face with fiery eyes, a broken or a flat nose, a beak-like mouth with protruding fangs and forked ears. Like he is just absolutely ugly. But yet he looks in the mirror and he just sees like the most handsome, suave guy on the planet. So, <laughs> which is hilarious.、Right. These characteristics that I just mentioned are actually all features of the rhesus macaque, which is an old world monkey on which Sun Wukong is based. So, 
the way they're described in the novel it may to sound it may sound very demonic but it's it's just basically describing what a monkey looks like okay so the third one is a name that's actually given to him and what he's mainly known by so he's some will call you know it's a religious name given to him by his budo dallas master sabuti and it means monkey awakened to emptiness uh the son the surname son technically means grandson but it refers to husun which is an ancient chinese name for the macaque monkey and um husun means grandson of the barbarian and it refers to an ancient chinese view of the northern barbarian tribes as being less than human with animal like qualities you know so basically if you look at a monkey you know they're an animal but they have a lot of human qualities the ancient chinese looked at these barbarians that wore furs and rode around on horses and shot arrows and they're like okay well the humans but they also have animal qualities so that's where that connection comes from the word uh, emptiness and awakened to emptiness is an english translation of a buddhist concept called shunyata which refers to enlightenment However, it's unknown if Samuel Kong is named directly after this concept or if he was named after a historical 8th century Chinese monk with the same dharma name Wu Kong. So, basically this guy, he lived during the Tang dynasty. He lived after the time of the historical Xuanzang. He was part of a mission to Kashmir in 751, but he became sick and he stayed in the area and was eventually ordained as a monk. He traveled around uh, Central Asia and India I think until he returned to China in 790 and then he gave a Tang emperor a lot of you know religious gifts from his travels and the emperor was so impressed that he gave him the name Wu Kong so scholars are not really sure where that portion of Samuel Kong's name comes from the next one is the keeper of the heavenly horses this obviously refers to when monkey becomes the keeper of the heavenly horses uh after causing so much troubles with the dragon king and also in hell the the name itself is actually like the chinese is is bima wen and it's actually a play on um an ancient term called avoiding the horse plague which is pronounced similarly and this refers to an ancient chinese belief that keeping a monkey in a horse stable would chase away demonic spirits that would make the horses sick and the superstition was actually practiced in uh, Japan as well and uh on an interesting note the heavenly horses in the novel are actually based on a, a species of central asian horse that was prized in china during the han dynasty the next one is great sage equal to heaven this is a title again that the monkey king gives himself during his rebellion with heaven again it's his very egotistical it's just his his way at at thumbing his nose at the the powers that be just saying you know oh you think you're so great well i am just as great as you are listeners may be surprised to learn that in a late uh yuan to early ming dynasty play that predates the final ming version of the novel by nearly 200 years sun is actually called by a different name he's called the great sage reaching heaven while an older brother is called the great sage equaling heaven So in this novel obviously he is portrayed as having several siblings specifically two sisters and two brothers each being divine or demonic in nature so I've read that there's a temple in Fujian province in southern China that contains a, either a late Yuan or early Ming temple that has these plaques that are devoted to both the great sages equaling heaven and the great sages reaching heaven 
that suggests there might have been a cult for these deities at this time. But I've only read about this in like Chinese newspapers and not actually scholarly works. What's important is that a lot of times uh, plays and literature, they were used to carry, you know, religious messages. Uh, but also there was sometimes literature could influence religion. So I'm not really sure if there was a historical cult or if this, if there was a cult, it might have been based on, you know, theater at the time. But there actually is a name for Samukong that's very similar to the great sage reaching heaven that predates all of this, and it goes back to the 13th century storytelling prompt that I mentioned before. And at the end of the novel, after, or not the novel, sorry, the storytelling prompt, after they return the uh, the sutras to China, uh, Tripitaka gives Monkey the name the Great Sage Bronze Muscles and Iron Bones. Number six, this is a name that maybe a lot of people may not know or may not remember. So Pilgrim Sun. And this is a name given to him by Tripitaka in the Ming version of the novel. The word itself means postulant, which is a lay Buddhist acolyte. So again, this is pilgrim, pilgrim. So pilgrim means a lay Buddhist acolyte who is yet to be ordained, but lives as a monk with an unshaven head. Uh, it is also used for an itinerant or traveling monk who begs for alms and preaches on the road. So both of these terms are appropriate because monkey lacks the required religious education and is also traveling the road to India. So that's why he's called Pilgrim Sun. The next he's called uh, the hairy faced thunder God. And this is basically kind of an insult that people say to monkey. Uh, so he's called this numerous times throughout the, the novel, usually by humans that are scared by monkey's appearance. And then also by like the little imps who were in the armies of the demon Kings and whatnot. So, the, the name Hairy Face Thunder God refers to monkeys protruding mouth full of fangs, and this recalls the beak of the bird-like thunder god Legong in, in Taoism. And also, both monkey and the thunder god are always depicted as wearing tiger skin. So this is this goes back to what I mentioned before, where you have these wrathful deities who often have, you know, the armbands and the anklets and everything, and they also wear the the tiger skin. And then the last name is the Victorious Fighting Buddha. And this is the name or the title that's given to him by the Buddha uh, when he, when monkey is elevated in spiritual rank to Buddha, at, to a Buddha, I should say, at the end of the novel. I honestly don't know anything about the background of the title, but it's interesting to note that while Sun is worshipped as a god, in southern China, Taiwan, Malaysia, and Singapore, he's not actually known by the victorious fighting Buddha. His worshippers don't even use his religious name, Wukong, which you may remember refers to awaken to emptiness. Instead, they call him the great sage equaling heaven. And this suggests his rebellious or his rebelliousness appealed to the likely poor and downtrodden people of southern China. So those are the, the eight names that he gets throughout the the novel. It's either he's gives them to himself or he gets called those by other characters. Sun Wukong has a lot of uh, special abilities, you know, mostly fighting. 
Of my favorite, the one that sticks out is his ability to chew and spit out his hair into whatever he wishes. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the story? First of all, tell listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the novel uh, how he acquires this, or or give it a description of what happens when he does do this. But also, historically, what does that draw upon? The the power that you're referring to, and there's a specific name for it, and it's called the body outs or the method of the body outside of the body. And the novel describes how because Sun Wukong is immortal, he's able to separate portions of himself uh, out from the original and transform it into anything that he wants. When he returns from uh, his tutelage under Master Sabuti, he comes home and finds that this demon has taken over his uh, mountain cave. And so when he goes to fight this demon, you know, that's when he sends out all of these monkey clones who beat up this demon. And then eventually he wrestles the sword away from the demon and then i don't know cuts him in half or chops his head off or something but there are two sources so the name itself the method of the body outside of the body comes from i'm not sure if it's from the song dynasty or what but at some point from the tong to the song dynasty there is a method for cultivating immortality where basically you you gestate this metaphorical it's like a heavenly embryo within your body. It's a way of using chi and circulating spiritual energy to where it's basically, it's a spiritual body that you produce through uh, cultivation. And once you are able to separate it from your mortal body, that immortal spirit body can travel uh, wherever it wants to and do whatever or go wherever it wants to do whatever it wants to. And that was actually known of known as the body outside the body. So that's where that name comes from. And then the method itself where he uh, plucks hair and transforms them into, you know, little, little tiny monkeys is based again on a song dynasty ritual. So, Even going back before the Song Dynasty, there was a a ritual or a series of rituals where uh, a a priest would create celestial soldiers to, say, fight against demonic forces. And they would use really small objects like beans or hair. For instance, in the older traditions, you could transform beans into soldiers and then you could make paper horses. I don't know, using origami or just cut them out, cut out the shapes and do some sort of ritual on it, and those would transform the horses. So you would have the soldiers and the horses to fight the, the demons. Well, in this later ritual, these priests would basically pluck hair from their, their head or from their arm, I'm not sure exactly. But during the, the process of plucking hair, they would actually call forth gods. And there is a source that mentions, uh, let me see, from all the holes and pores in the body of down and hair burst forth 10,000 rays of golden glow. The 10,000 gods all manifested themselves inside this golden glow. So it was believed that the uh, practitioner's body like held a number of celestial gods inside and they could call those gods forth by like plucking the hairs. As far as him chewing it up, you know, I'm not a scholar of like a straight up scholar of Buddhism or Taoism. So I I can't pinpoint specific things. But to me, if you're able to call forth gods just by plucking out hair, 
like if you chew them up, like you can basically divide them up into even more gods or soldiers or what have you. So I think that's why he chews them up in the novel. Uh, the four great Chinese novels, personally, no offense, but my favorite is Outlaws of the Marsh, but mm-hmm. Journey to the West is second. And on your blog, your Journey to the West research, you talked about there were parallels between uh, Sun Wukong and the character Wu Song from Outlaws of the Marsh. Could you talk about that? Right. Yeah, it's uh, something, I- I'm sure there have been other uh, more qualified scholars who have noticed the similarities, but I just happened to notice it, you know, some time back, because I was, basically I was writing an article, or actually I've mentioned Wu Song in several articles that I've written. So the first time I mentioned Wu Song is where I talked about the headband. And then I wrote later wrote an article where I talked about the the type of metal that Sun Wukong's weapon is made from. So I just noticed that he just kept on popping up and popping up. If it's okay, uh, I'd like to give a brief overview of uh, Outlaws of the Marsh. Please, yeah. Okay, so the book, which is traditionally known in English as The Water Margin, but also known as Outlaws of the Marsh and All Men Are Brothers, was compiled during the... 14th century from pre-existing stories. The narrative follows 108 evil spirits who are reborn during the 12th century as extraordinary men and women who come together to use their martial, intellectual, or magical skills to rebel against the corrupt Song Dynasty government. And the Song Dynasty was 960 to 1279. The story itself is actually based on a historical rebellion I think that took place in like 1120 or 1121. But, you know, even during the Song Dynasty, there was a lot of like, it was embellished. You know, there was a myth established because these people dare, you know, dare to stand against the Song Dynasty government. Well, anyway, so in the, in the, the narrative, each character uh, is given a small handful of biographical chapters before the narrative pulls back and then focuses on them as a as a whole, as a group. And in the end, the rebels are pardoned by the government and then recruited to fight a barbarian tribe invading China. Uh, Wu Song's story appears in chapters 23 to 32 of the 100-chapter edition. In short, Wu Song is a superhumanly strong martial artist capable of beating a tiger to death with his bare hands. He avenges various injustices by killing those responsible and is forced to disguise himself as a Buddhist monk and join the outlaws. At the end of the story cycle, Wu loses an arm in combat and retires to a monastery to live as a real monk after the rebels are pardoned. Uh, One of the injustices that's done to him is that he has this older brother that he idolizes. It's, It's just like the, it's almost like a father to him because the the brother is just so important. And the brother has this adulterous wife and the wife and her lover basically kill the older brother and that enrages Wu Song and he gets his revenge. He 
chops her head off. I think he chops the dude's head off. That's he's a big fan of chopping off heads. Like he does that <laughs> numerous times throughout the novel. And every time he does it, I go, yeah, like I, I always do like a fist bump in the air when he, when he does it. Well, to explain to folks, I mean, the people's heads he's chopping off, the novel yeah. in a way makes you hate them. I mean, cause they're awful people. They're not just they're not good people. Not yeah, at so all. That's why I, do, why I do a fist bump because they're horrible people and they, they deserve to have their heads chopped. Yeah. Off. They're infuriating. I mean, they have been party to many other people's innocent deaths in the, in the story. Right, right. So in the course of, Doing various research, like I said, I came across these similarities. So there are six in total. I'll list them out first, and then I'll go through and, you know, describe them in more detail. So both characters are reformed supernatural spirits previously imprisoned under stone. Both are tiger killers. Both are Buddhist monks with the religious name Pilgrim. Both are warrior monks proficient in armed and unarmed combat. Both wear a golden headband representing morality, and both fight with a weapon made from a special kind of steel. So number one, both are reformed supernatural spirits previously imprisoned under stone. Uh, Everyone knows how Kong is imprisoned under Five Elements Mountain by the Buddha for 500 years. In the water margin, Wusong is one of 108 spirits trapped in an underground prison under a great stone slab for 500 years by a Dallas sage. So both stories have spirits being imprisoned under stone for centuries by a religious figure. Both episodes are based on a Taoist ritual from the Song Dynasty in which an exorcist forces spirits inside of a jug of liquid, representing a prison in the earth, and then makes a hand symbol that magically summons the immense pressing weight of Mount Tai, a holy mountain considered the heaviest thing imaginable. In Chinese culture, the magical hand symbol representing a mountain explains why the Buddha transforms his hand into five elements mountain. So I thought that was pretty cool when I learned that. Number two, both are tiger killers. So as mentioned earlier, Monkey kills a tiger shortly after being released from imprisonment and uses the fur to make his clothing. For Wu Song, he drunkenly stumbles through a mountain pass and is attacked by a man eating tiger and the scuffle. He accidentally breaks his staff, and then he's forced to basically beat the tiger to death with his bare hands, or at least close to it. Like, he rains down 60 or 70 blows, and then the tiger stops moving, and then he uses his staff to beat it the rest of the way dead. If I can insert here, I would say on the mainland, at least, probably most people have not read Outlaws of the Marsh all the way through, but almost everybody knows the story about how Wusong killed a tiger. I, right, right. I suspect it's just taught to children as a, maybe a reading primer or, or something like that, but it, it's a good point of reference if you're ever talking to someone of Chinese descent. They will know that story, at least. Right, yeah, and actually, I think that I'm pretty sure that predates... The, the novel itself, that, that storytelling episode, because the stories about Sun Wukong and Wu Song, they both developed during the Song Dynasty. So you'll you'll people listening have probably noticed a theme where there's usually a Taoist ritual or there's some kind of a story from the Song Dynasty that has influenced, you know, these novels. And that's because vernacular fiction uh, developed from like an earlier Tang Dynasty storytelling tradition that was based on Buddhist monks would travel and would basically tell Buddhist sutras in a way that was entertaining. And then that was just kind of adapted by Chinese storytellers 
and then vernacular fiction started to form during the Song Dynasty and into the, the Ming Dynasty. So that's why there's Song Dynasty, Song Dynasty everywhere. Going back to killing tigers, so the ability to kill a tiger was a mark of a great hero in ancient Chinese folklore. For example, a 5th century story about a 3rd century general called Zhou Chu states he was able to kill a tiger with ease, but it takes him, what was it, oh, three subsequent days to kill a dragon. So he was able to just kill a tiger with ease, so it just showed how strong he was. Right. And that's I, I, I think that's why you have this recurring thing where you have Wu Song kills a tiger and then, you know, there's like a one up thing where Wu Song, you know, it's a bitter struggle, but he's so powerful he can do it. And then here comes Wu Song, just like a single hit, boom, the tiger is hamburger, he's dead. So it's kinda like to me personally, I think that the that episode in Journey of the West was kind of a sly nod to the water margin saying, Okay, well Wu Song's a great hero, but but monkeys an even greater. Hero. Right, it's just kind of a one-up sort of thing. And I think an, okay. another thing about this story, or killing any tigers, is probably lost on modern readers because to us, tigers are in a zoo. You know, <laughs> so back then, and in fact, I've come across several s- terrible stories about how t- tigers plagued humanity. You know, by killing them, you know, waiting on their paths to, to maul them and eat them and, you know, eat right. children and all this kind of stuff. So in recent times in India, obviously there are tigers there too, which can kill people. And in this video, like they're trying to save this local village by, you know, removing this tiger and its cubs to a, a further out location. And they got the cubs, but they didn't get the mom, which really makes her mad. And <laughs> There is a uh, like a search party where all of these people are on elephants and they're beating this tall grass with sticks and all of them are carrying guns. And this mom tiger just comes out of nowhere, goes from zero to pissed off (laughs) and runs really quick and almost jumps over a an elephant and then like slashes this guy with her claws. I was just like, oh, wow. Like, that was, like, one of the scariest things I've seen in my life. And I can see why, you know, Wu Song killing a tiger with his bare hands makes him, you know, a great hero. Because just seeing that video alone would make me want to soil myself, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, moving on. So, both are Buddhist monks with the religious name Pilgrim. So, previously mentioned, Monkey is called uh, Pilgrim Sun. Uh, In the water margin... We have, once he becomes, he dresses up as a Buddhist monk, people start calling him Pilgrim Wu. And these nicknames are quite old, with the earliest examples appearing during the 13th century, which again is during the Song Dynasty. Interestingly, the ancient media mentioning both Pilgrim portray them as staff-wielding monks with a taste for killing. And this is tied to real-world warrior and bandit monks known for their skill with the staff. So you have... Warrior monks were men who lived apart from the devout religious Buddhist community and used their martial skills to protect monasteries in times of need. And the bandit monks were simply outlaws who dressed as Buddhist clergy to avoid problems with the law. And there was quite a bit of overlap between the two groups and both regularly broke the precepts against eating meat, drinking alcohol, and killing. Number four. Both are warrior monks proficient in armed and unarmed combat. So Monkey shows off his skill in unarmed fighting in, in two chapters. And in, in what was it? Chapter 51, uh, the novel describes him in a demonic 
enemy using a long list of real-world punches, kicks, throws, and grapples that are still known and practiced to this day. Uh, some actually appear in Taiji boxing. Uh, Wu Song spends a large portion of his biographical chapters getting drunk and beating up bad guys because that that was like that's a big thing running throughout the novel where you have these big powerful warriors who just get drunk and just pummel all of these bad people and again <laughs> that's when you start doing the fist bump. Right. He is described as a master of a kicking style called Jade Circle Steps with Duck and Drake Feet, which could be another name for a modern style called uh, Chuo Jiao, or Piercing Foot. The characters' respective images as monks adept at fighting are again based on the historical warrior monks that I mentioned earlier. And the most famous warrior monks are, of course, those of the Shaolin Temple in uh, Henan Province, China. Shaolin was primarily known for their staff fighting, which again goes back to the staffs that I mentioned earlier. But eventually, during the 17th century, the monks adopted boxing into their curriculum. But evidence suggests that a few Shaolin monks practiced boxing as a form of entertainment as far back as the 8th century. So you have to think that monasteries were not, they were not sealed off from the world. You know, monks don't spontaneously come from nowhere. So you have to get either children or at least older people. And a lot of times you have these people who were, you know, professional soldiers who would retire to become monks. And obviously they would teach their fighting skills to younger monks. So that's where you, that's basically where you have martial monks coming from. See, number five, both wear a golden headband. If anyone has seen any like modern uh, portrayals of Wu Song, and uh, like on TV, you always see him. He has the long, uh, frizzy hair, and then he's got like the golden headband on top. Uh, so Sun Wukong's golden headband tightens around his head when the correct spell is spoken, and then Wu Song disguises himself as a monk, and he takes the band from a previous monk. Uh, both bands are ultimately based on the esoteric Buddhist ritual uh, gear that I mentioned earlier. But Wu Song's immediate association is likely based on that worn by warrior monks in Chinese opera. The kind they wear is known in English as a precepts ring, as in, you know, the Buddhist precepts. And it serves as a symbol of abstinence. And it features uh, the, that specific band, which actually you can see some Wukong wear, in the 1986 version of the TV show, that band features an upturned crescent moon shape in the middle of the forehead. And, you know, monkey wearing that kind shouldn't be a surprise since he too is a warrior monk. So interestingly, some religious statues of Sun Wukong and temples dedicated to Great Sage portray him as a long-haired warrior monk. So there is an obvious connection between Chinese opera, Chinese religion, and uh, Chinese literature. So it's Really cool. Let's see. Lastly, both fight with a weapon made from a special kind of steel. So one chapter states Sun Wukong's magic staff was hand forged by Lao Tzu from something called bin steel. So that's B-I-N. That's obviously the English transliteration. Uh, in the water margin, after Wu Song dresses in the dead monk's clothing, he also takes possession of the man's Buddhist sabers, which are said to be made from snowflake pattern bin steel. So bin steel is a real world crucible steel originally imported in a raw state from Persia to China starting in the sixth century. The secret of its manufacture eventually reached the middle kingdom by the 12th century. 
it was an exceptionally fine steel used to make uh, like strong, durable swords and knives. And a lot of them were considered more valuable than silver. I've even read that some were more valuable than gold just because the craftsmanship, the workmanship was so high and the steel was of a super high quality. So basically, the, these two... Uh, storytelling cycles portray the finest of heroes wielding the finest of steel weapons. On occasion, a graphic novel will get the attention of folks that don't read comic books normally. Probably the best example would be Mouse, the um, graphic novel about the Holocaust. And another one was Safe Area Gorazid. I think I'm mispronouncing that. But there was one recent in the last 10 years uh, that came out that, again, got quite a few awards and uh, mentioned among uh, the uh, highbrow literary types. It was called uh, American Born Chinese. Uh, the author's name was uh, Jin Yang, mm-hmm. which at its heart is about a Chinese immigrant boy adjusting to both life in America and his growth into manhood. And yet, in a very clever and I think apropos way, Yang makes Sun Wukong a major character in the story. Can you talk about that and you know tell us what you think about the book, too? Well, I, I really loved it. Like, uh, Let me see. It came out... I think in 2006, and I don't remember exactly when I first got it. Like, I think it it came out, and I didn't hear about it for some time. But the the basic story, like you mentioned, is there is a, a young boy. He's a first-generation immigrant. He originally lives in the San Francisco Chinatown, and obviously there is a large uh, ratio of Asian to, uh, like Anglo American people. So he obviously is living in a community of people. That's his own ethnicity, own background. Well, his family eventually moves to a predominantly like white neighborhood outside of Chinatown. I don't remember if it's in a different state or where exactly, but basically he starts running into, you know, xenophobia and he starts to question his own ethnic background and, and worth basically. Because, you know, like, for instance, there's this girl, this white girl that he really likes uh, and he would love to date her. But unfortunately, he has, you know, some very xenophobic um, classmates who do not approve of the, um, you know, them going out together. So the story is broken up into three bits. Okay, so the first one tells the story of Sun Wukong. It's it's not an exact retelling. Uh, but I mean, it's it's enough to understand what's going on. So you have Sun Wukong, he gets punished and everything for g- going against the will of heaven. So the first story is about Sun Wukong, second story is about Jean Wong, and then this, the last story is about a white student named Danny, who is an all-American kid. He is uh, dating the most beautiful girl, uh, but unfortunately he has this annoying a Chinese cousin who is like the worst racist character of Chinese people you can possibly think of. He has like the Q braid. He has the giant buck teeth. He speaks in Chinglish. Uh, every, everything he's, you know, basically his mere presence is just embarrassing to Danny. And you find out 
eventually that Danny is actually the child Gene Wong. Like he, in order to fit in to white society, he adopted this this white persona, which I think is just totally amazing, you know. And obviously, this has connections to uh, the Monkey King's transformations. And then also, we learn that Danny's cousin is actually the Monkey King. Like it was the Monkey King, you know. He's a trickster, so he was basically playing a trick on Gene Wong. He was showing, you know, this is this is what you think of yourself. Like this is basically how you think of Chinese people, and the re and the way that the Monkey King snaps Gene Wong out of that delusion is he beats him up. When Gene Wong was still in his Danny frame of mind as the white kid, he got mad at his cousin, whose name is Chen Ki, which if you pronounce it fast enough, it sounds like Chinky,、oh, yeah. which is you know a racist term for. You know, Asian Americans, and I know that firsthand because I went to high school in Tennessee, and I had a lot of Asian American、uh, friends who were transfer students. And you know, there are—I'm not saying everyone who lives in the South is racist, far from it—but there were a few people who would throw the word "chink" around. So I, when I read that, I was like, "Oh my God, that's just like what happened to my friends." So that was an added connection. So when Danny gets mad. He tries to beat up Chen Ki, and Chen Ki again, since he is a caricature of the Chinese, knows kung fu and and beats up Danny, and that's how Danny snaps out of that and becomes,、uh, you know, back to Jin Wong. And so the whole persona of Chen Ki was basically it was a transformation or a suit. It's more of a suit, but you could say it's a transformation of the Monkey King because the Monkey King is saying. You shouldn't think of your yourself as this, but what basically what ties the Monkey King to Gene Wong is that、uh, Gene Wong has a friend, an Asian American friend, who、uh, I forget I forget his name, but basically like he's just living his life, like he doesn't really have any connection to his his Asian American or his、uh, like Asian roots. He has basically just forsaken his his Asian background. And you find out that that friend is actually the son of the Monkey King. The Monkey King's son, you know, was sent to Earth by the Monkey King, and he became disillusioned. And so he basically just swore off his heavenly background, his Chinese background, and it's the whole story. Like I, I really, I, I apologize for my bad synopsis, but it, like, it was, it's a very touching story. Like I'm not even. Uh, Asian, but having Asian American friends and knowing what they probably went through when I lived in Tennessee, like it's it's very eye opening, it's heart wrenching, and obviously it's a graphic novel, so it's beautifully drawn, it's brightly colored, and it's just it, it's an amazing story that people should read because it deals with you know identity politics and you know self worth. Cultural background—it's an amazing piece of work, and I'm, I'm glad that they they use Sun Wukong as a linchpin because obviously his powers for transformation, you know, lend a lot to its use in other forms of media. Yeah, it's a complicated book. I mean, it's—I've read it twice and got totally different things out of it the second time. I think if anything, it shows like the humanity of everybody. So even though 
the xenophobia is heavy on the Americans just because, you know, these um, Chinese boys are in America, but also their parents reject, you know, American cultural practices and kind of look down their nose at the American culture right. as, as being decadent. And, uh, you know, they have strict rules about like who a virtuous person would be. You know, I think the, the girl says it would be someone with thick glasses because they study all the time and have strained their eyes. Right. It's a very universal book, I would say. One interesting thing I never noticed and again till the second time I read it was, and he doesn't mention this in the story, but again, it's so typical of Sun Wukong to have, there's a picture of him, I assume, being one of the kings who visited the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Oh, really, really, I like that. You could either say that was part of Sun Wukong's braggadociousness or, mm-hmm. you know, we do know, I mean, the Bible does say that the kings came from the Orient. So, you know, who knows? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I don't remember that because I, I read it years ago and then I loved it so much that I gave it to my nephew because I wanted him to read. And it's currently on his bookshelf along with all of my other comic books. In closing, let's talk about a little bit about your blog and, you know, kind of plug it and uh, anything new going on with it. Uh, well, right now I'm currently, I'm working on a few things. I currently have a teaching job that kind of cuts into my research time. Uh, but the one article that I'm working on right now has to do with the the Tang Dynasty source about the white ape uh, that likely influenced Sun Wukong's, at least his Ming Dynasty portrayal. Like, obviously there are lots of uh, various sources that did influence Sun Wukong, and I think that the White Ape tale is more of a, a later, a later influence. So, like I had mentioned before, in that story, the White Ape kidnaps the wife of a general, and you know that goes back to White Ape tales that are present during the the Han Dynasty. But there is, uh, I mentioned earlier, there is a play from the early Ming Dynasty, and in that play, Monkey actually has a wife whom he had kidnapped from a neighboring kingdom. So, you know, I, I think this Tong Dynasty tale definitely influenced. It definitely helped put a blanket of, like a, a patina of Taoism since Monkey, you know, has from the very be- beginning been associated with Buddhism. You know, because the white ape in the story is, is portrayed basically as a Taoist wizard. You know, like he can fly, he can change his shape. He reads uh, like these very archaic Taoist books that no one else can read. The, the type of longevity arts that he practices are called, that are associated with, um, it's called the art of the bedchamber, which is basically sexual yoga. And that was present during the, the Han, or the, sorry, the Tong dynasty. The article talks about the similarities and then I try to trace white tales to, you know, other precursors and into like a wider myth cycle to where you have people thinking that they are the descendants of a primate that's present in both southwestern China and also into Tibet. Well, great. I look forward to it. Thanks for coming on again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
Be sure to check out Jim's website, journeytothewestresearch.wordpress.com. And if you're interested in other Chinese cultural phenoms, for sure, check out In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episodes 187, 188, and 190, where Lazo Montgomery of the China History Podcast and myself talk about the swing in Shanghai music of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.